We're continuing a series called One Big Story. And, I, I, you know, life rarely takes us in a straight line. Sometimes life just kind of unfolds, and it unfolds in ways that we could have never imagined. Uh, so I'm a pastor uh, here in Stuttgart, Arkansas, and that's where I am now, but that's not where I have been. My journey to this place has gone from various places. I got my master's degree in Texas. I have been, before this, a youth minister for 17 years um, all over uh, Arkansas, Missouri, Louisiana. I have zigzagged. And before the, before I moved here, I was a church starter in Louisiana in the shreveport Bossier area. My life has not been in a straight line. It's been all over the place. And I know that the shortest distance between two places is a straight line. But I'm discovering as a follower of Jesus Christ, God rarely, rarely presents me or you with a journey that is in a straight line. Sometimes the lines in our lives, they get twisted. Sometimes we lose sight of our way. Maybe it's because we didn't plan properly. Maybe we wind up at the wrong place, somewhere we never intended to be, but our journey has taken us to that place anyway, and it may be the wrong place. Sometimes we're at the wrong place at the, at, at the wrong time, right? Sometimes we, we, we know where we want to go, and it may be the right place, but we end up there at the wrong time, like the time I loaded up my car with my kiddos and drove to Six Flags in Dallas, only to discover that for the weekend, the park was closed. (laughs) Yeah, I am the Griswolds. In life, sometimes we find ourselves on top of mountains, kind of these mountaintop experiences. And when we're there, the view is great. Uh, The the spiritual breeze, maybe, that you feel is wonderful. And, And maybe from up there, you can see your way clear for where you're headed in life next. Maybe we just feel closer to God at those mountaintop experiences in our lives. But for any of you who have been hiking very much, then you know that for every single mountain you experience, there is a connected what? A valley. A valley is connected. And sometimes our life simply detours the mountain altogether, and it feels like we have to live in the valley. Other times... The valley just comes crashing into our lives and we feel like we're knocked off course. We're surprised by something that happens. We didn't see it coming. It's, it's tempting for me, if you're anything like me, it's tempting for me to equate those moments when I'm on this mountaintop spiritual experience with God. It's tempting for me to equate those moments of the mountaintop with God's presence in my life. And then when I hit a valley that is low and dark and lonely, it's easy for me to equate that, that valley experience, with God being absent from my life. 
I tend to think that when I'm riding high, I must be experiencing God's favor. But if I'm crashing to the ground, it must be a sign that God is angry with me or that God is absent. You've probably in your life been in a similar situation. I think those are the times, though. Those are the times that we have to remember who is actually writing this story. Those are the times that we have to ask ourselves or remind ourselves who this story is ultimately about. So that leads us to a question. What do you do when you fail? What do you do when you feel so far away from God that you don't feel like you will ever be able to find your way back? I think this is what we need to do. It's in those moments that we need to remember that God has never lost you. And listen to this. God has never lost sight of you. And he will provide you a way back. Remember, last week as we were in this series, um, we were talking about this. We said that, that it is not about your performance. It is much more about God's promise. But what do you do when you lose faith? I think we have to do this. We have to remember that God faithfully pursues the unfaithful. That's what we have to remember. And what if, as we think about that, what if the valley moments in your life, the bad moments, are, are not the times when you are the furthest from God, but maybe it's a time where he can more clearly demonstrate just how committed to pursuing us, the unfaithful, that God is. What if, what if the messy places are not roadblocks in your life, roadblocks for you to experience God's presence? What if they're not roadblocks, but what if they're actually the fast lane straight to God's heart? What if? What if the story plays out that is playing out in our lives? What if it has less to do with our character and more to do with the character of God? Well, we don't always see how things will work out at any given moment in the journeys that we're on. God has a different perspective. And God is faithful to get us where he wants us to go. And guess what? He will never leave us. Now, I want to catch you up on where we've been with this journey, just in case this is your first Sunday here with us this morning. As we began this series, we were talking about how a good God created a good world just to reveal how good he is. And after that creation, well... Then everything fell apart. But guess what? God stayed in the story, even though his creation was falling apart. God showed up to a man named Abraham. 
And he promised to make him a great nation and to bless all of humanity through him. So that was the next thing on the major thing on our timeline. God shows up and he talks to Abraham. Now we learn this. We learn that God works according to his promises and according to his purposes, not according to our performance and not according to what we expect, the way we expect God should act. God is persistently pursuing us, his creation. And he's doing that through his promises, his presence, right in the middle of your journey that you're living. Now, if you're interested in any of that, you could catch up on SoundCloud, uh, our SoundCloud account, and we have all three weeks of this series already on there, and you could listen to those from SoundCloud. But when we stopped last week, this guy we're talking about here, Abraham, he was 99 years old. Yes, you heard me correctly, 99 years old. But here's the deal. He was still waiting at 99 for God to come through with his promise. And what was the promise? The promise was that he would become the father of a great nation. And at 99 years old, he was not a father yet (laughs) of even a child, much less a nation. So you understand how difficult this was going to be. But God came through on his promises. Eventually, God did. He fulfilled the promise to Abraham, and he had a son named Isaac. There's his name there, Isaac. Isaac had some sons. One of those was Jacob. Jacob also had some sons. He had 12 sons, in fact, and that is one there. His name was Joseph. So God did come through with his promise, and he started all of this nation of Israel from those people right there. So it was beginning to look good for Abraham. One of his great-grandsons, that's his name there, Joseph. Joseph even became the prime minister of Egypt, which was the largest world power of that time. And this foreigner named Joseph became the prime minister. That's pretty interesting. He was very powerful, second in command of all of Egypt. And eventually, all of Joseph's family, all of his brothers, all of their wives, all of their children, their entire family moved to Egypt, and they all settled there. Over the course of time, the Egyptians, after Joseph and his family died, Their relatives were all still there, and this was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And over time, Joseph's contribution to this country of Egypt was forgotten. Joseph was no longer the favored foreigner. And, well, the Hebrews, they were having lots of babies, loads of babies. The nation was growing And the Egyptians were getting nervous. The ruling powers were afraid the Israelites were going to take over. And so they turned the nation of Israel into slaves. They forced them to work as slaves, and they made it very difficult. You know, at one time, they even tried to control the population of the Israelites. And here's what they did. They said, we're going to kill all the baby boys that are Hebrew, that are Israelites, under the age of two. We're going to kill them all. Oh, they did some horrible things like that. But one baby, during that time, a baby boy who should have been killed, he escaped this genocide, and he was discovered, not by Pharaoh, 
but he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter and she brought him into his house and she raised him and his name was Moses. So Moses shows up on the scene. Now God has a big plan here for this man named Moses. Once again, when, when God's creation was in chaos, God inserts himself into this story and, and he gives it some very unexpected twists. When Moses was found, when Moses was found, here's, here's, he, he discovered eventually his heritage. His heritage, he was an Israelite, a Hebrew, but he was raised as an Egyptian. And in a moment of anger, when an Egyptian was being very cruel to an Israelite, Moses kills the Egyptian. That was a big deal. In order for Moses to escape death, certain death now that he had killed an Egyptian, in order for him to escape that, he had to run off. And Moses was now haunted by this past, unsure of how this all fit into his story. Why was he, as an Israelite, raised as an Egyptian, and now he has had to run off and run away and hide? Forty years later, Moses hid for 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years later, God came to Moses in a voice from a burning bush. Now, that's pretty, pretty wild. That certainly would get somebody's attention. And in this, I just want you to know, God is promising constantly through the Old Testament. He's promising his presence. He's giving them promises even way out in the desert. Moses is receiving a promise from God, a promise that God will be with Moses. Now, God can choose to reveal himself anytime, anywhere, in any way he chooses. In this moment, it was through a burning bush. Now, listen to this exchange here as God is talking to Moses. I want to read it. It'll be on the screen for you. Exodus chapter 6, starting with verse 2. God says, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, those were the sons, as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So he said, I didn't reveal everything. He said, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, he said, I've heard the groanings of the Israelites. He said, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God, in this moment, entered the story again in a dramatic, big, huge way. And he declares again, 
who he is, and what he's going to do. And God is still present with his people, still committed to his people, and still committed to those promises that he gave them. Even to this day, he's committed to that. Now, just like he called Abraham to play a very specific role, in this moment, God is calling out Moses to play a very specific role. Now, Moses didn't see himself as a hero, not at all. In fact, Moses did not want a role in this story that God's writing. Now, to back up just a little bit, he had already tried to, ha- to save his people, the Israelites, once when he killed that Egyptian, and that didn't go over so well. And so, now what happens, when we try to take over the story and do things our way, and to, that's what Moses did, and it didn't work. It never works out when we try to do it our way. Even if we're trying to do a good thing, if we're doing it our way instead of in God's way and his timing, it just doesn't work out. And that's what happens. When God is trying to write a story, how often do we jump in and try to do it our way? Now, because of that, 40 years later, God picks this man who's been hiding in the wilderness named Moses to play a key role in this story that he's writing. Moses tried to back out. I mean, maybe Moses felt disqualified. Maybe, maybe Moses felt that because of this major failure where he killed a man, murdered a man, maybe he was disqualified from ever helping God again. Maybe that's what he thought. Or maybe he was just embarrassed. After having been hiding out in the wilderness, after... Moses' face has been hanging on a wanted poster back in Egypt. Maybe he was embarrassed to now go back to Egypt where he used to live in the palace. And now he's been hiding in the wilderness. We don't know why Moses didn't want to participate. But we know this. That's not how God saw Moses. God saw a deliverer in Moses. Moses was uniquely designed to play that very specific role. Think about this. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life living in the palace, learning the culture of the Egyptians, learning how the politics of Egypt worked. That could be handy for what God was getting ready to do through Moses. And then after that, Moses then ran off to the wilderness where he spent 40 years learning how to live off the land in the wilderness. He was learning survival skills. Hmm, I'm going to say this. I don't think that's an accident. God knew exactly what he was asking Moses to do. But listen, God didn't really need Moses, but God did choose him to play a part. The rescue of the Hebrews from slavery, their deliverance out of Egypt, it is a tale of epic proportions. I mean, it includes giant storms, it includes lots of blood, it includes disease, invasion of pests. I mean, eventually, through all of that, Pharaoh does release the Israelites from slavery and he sends them on their way. Then, Esther, they were on their way, guess what? Pharaoh changed his mind. 
He was like, no, no, I think I want them back. <laughs> that was a good labor force. I think I want them back. So he pursues them. He gets the army together quickly, and he pursues them. And by this time, the entire nation has made it to the Red Sea. Too big to cross, too deep to cross, too dangerous to cross. They're stuck. And here comes the Egyptian army. They're trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And at the mercy of God, they just simply waited. And guess what happened? God showed up. The winds began to blow and it pushed back the Red Sea. And they actually crossed, the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, through those parted waters, the Bible says, on dry ground. And when the last Hebrew had got to the other side, the Egyptian army was now in, in the middle as well, pursuing the Israelites. And when the last Hebrew got to the other side, God allowed the water to go back down and it drowned the army and the Israelites were safe. You can read all about that in the, in the first half of the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. But can you imagine the reaction of the Hebrews? I mean, were they excited? I mean, were they full of gratitude? Did they rejoice? Did they celebrate? Of course they did. For a little while. I mean, just a little short while. That's all, just a little while. It did not take long before that entire nation, all of those people began to start complaining. Just a few short verses later, after this amazing escape through the Red Sea, we find this verse in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled. This is just a few verses later. They did not celebrate long. And then it goes on to say this. If we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, they said, there we sat around with pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. Not true. They were starving. And But, but you, he's talking about you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly, all of us, to death. <laughs> this is just a couple of verses later from the Red Sea. But here's the truth. Don't judge. Don't judge. I mean, sure. They are being really, really whiny. Makes you want to backhand them. I, I know. I understand. Makes you want to reach over the back seat, right? I know. I understand. But if each one of us gets really honest, our own thankfulness has a pretty short shelf life as well. I mean, don't believe me? You try eating the same thing just for a week, and you're going to find yourself complaining instead of being grateful that you just simply have food to eat at all. So God provided for the Israelites in very big, huge, miraculous way. Every single day of that journey, you know what happened? They had fresh food on the ground, but that wasn't enough. This was a brief episode, brief episode of grumbling. And they weren't just having a bad day. 
The Hebrews complained over and over and over again. They complained to God and they complained to Moses. Take a look at Numbers chapter 14. It'll be on the screen. It says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if we had just died in Egypt or, or, or in this wilderness... Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children are going to be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Seriously? I mean, really, this is a bit over the top, right? I mean, it's unreasonable. To think that they should go back to slavery? It's it's irrational. We're talking about grown adults who who over and over said to themselves, we would be better off as slaves back in Egypt than we would be right now with God who says to us that he'll be with us through all of our mistakes and through all of our challenges. That's what they were saying. The Israelites in this wilderness, they did the very same thing that Adam and Eve did that we talked about in week number one in the garden. They quickly forgot about God's goodness. They quickly forgot about God's faithfulness. They forgot about his miraculous deliverance. They forgot about the miracle of crossing the Red Sea. They forgot about the miracle of how God provided them water, the miracle of how God provided them food every day in the desert. They forgot the parts of God's story that he had already written into their lives, those things that God had already done. They forgot all that. Now, here's a big note. Right here. Don't miss this. When we forget God's faithfulness, we lose faith. When we face tough circumstances, when we forget how faithful God is, then when we face a tough circumstance, we're going to lose faith ourselves. So instead of expressing gratitude for what God has done, we just grumble. We grumble about what God is not doing, about how God is not acting the way we think that God should act. God had promised them a new homeland. But guess what? They could not stop thinking about their little bitty, itty bitty daily irritations that they were going through. They got distracted by a desire. We do the same thing. I want what I want and I want it right now. And you know what? When they got to that point, they started worshiping idols. Now, I know this sounds really ancient, worshiping idols. It sounds like an ancient old pagan practice, no relevance to our lives today. I, I know it sounds that way because I doubt any of us have any little wooden, uh, little wooden statues or stone objects or metal objects on our shelves that we pray to or that we worship on a daily basis. Probably not. But the reality is this, idolatry happens anytime Anytime we put our trust in something other than God. It's anything that we look to for guidance 
instead of God. Anything besides God that makes our life worth living. Let's pause for a moment. I think a lot of us are probably still idol worshipers today. And I know that sounds um, primitive. And if you're like me, it, it sounds very strong and you might have a strong reaction to that if you're like me at all. And you may be against that phrase. But just think with me for a moment. If an idol is anything that we trust more than we trust God, then... I can usually find an idol in my life if I just ask a couple of questions. Here's, here's what I ask. To what do I give most of my attention? That's a tough question. Here's a second one. From what do I derive my personal self-worth? Here's a third one. Where do I find safety and refuge and comfort and pleasure and security and shelter? Here's a fourth one. In my life, who do I feel like I must please? In my life, whose opinion do I listen to most? Whose opinion counts? Now, please understand me. There are many good answers to those questions, valid answers to those questions. Sure, I mean, definitely. Our family and our friends, they should demand our focus and our affections. The opinion of our spouse and our boss, yes, those should count and they should count big. And hopefully in our life we strive to, to, to please the people that we love and the people around us. God has given us lots of instruction for us about how to find safety and refuge and security. But what's important about those questions is this. Is God in the first place in the equation, in the question? Is he at the center of our focus and our affections? Is he ultimately the source of our identity, our value, our worth? Is it God's opinion that we value above all the other opinions? What exactly does all that look like? It means this, that we are connected to those who are close to us. Yes, we're connected to them. And we might even learn to depend upon them. Yes. But ultimately, we know that everything, everything that we are, everything that we need physically, emotionally, spiritually, it comes from the one who made us. And anything less... Anything less than that is an indication that our trust may be out of alignment and we may have, like the Israelites, have developed an idol. In the case of God's people here, they were once again at a pretty low place. It's not that they weren't trusting God. It's not the whole story. They were trusting in just about everything 
except God. So here's what happened. They wandered in that wilderness outside of Egypt for 40 years. Had they taken a straight trip from Egypt to the promised land, it would have only taken a few days to get from Egypt to the promised land. But instead, what should have been a straight line from Egypt to the promised land ended up being them wandering around for 40 years. Wow. The people who were destined by what God said to become a blessing to the whole world were stuck in the wilderness just scraping by. Now here's another big note. What does God do in these moments like that with the Israelites? Here's what he does. He remains faithful. You see, the people needed to take a step back and to get a different perspective of this story. And that's basically what the next book, Deuteronomy, what it really is all about. It's them taking a step back and getting a different perspective on the story. It it hits the pause button and it retells some of the major events where God showed up with the Israelites. And it reminded the people of who they were of whose they were, who they belonged to, God himself, and where they were going and why they were going there. That's what the book of Deuteronomy tells, and it tells all of this over again. It's the story of a faithful God pursuing unfaithful people, and this story repeats itself over and over and over again all through the Old Testament. When the people finally made it to the promised land, when they finally arrive, 40 years after they left Egypt, God gives them these people called judges, and he gives them to them for guidance. But guess what happens? <laughs> During the time of the judges, here goes that cycle again. Listen to Judges chapter 2, verse 10. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They forgot again. It was a cycle that was repeated over and over and over and over again. And I want to put that in perspective for you. When you see that on the timeline, judges there, it doesn't look like a very long time. Let me give you a perspective. The time of the judges was about 400 years. 400 years. And the people continuously forgot both the works of God and the ways of God, and they went way off course. And then the people demanded to have a king. We don't want judges anymore. We want a king. The first king they got, he went crazy. The next king made a royal error in judgment. The next king let women and wealth get the better of him. He had over 300 wives, tons of concubines. And his son incited a rebellion in the country that ripped it into two pieces. There was a northern kingdom now and a southern kingdom, but only one had the anointed king of God. Once again, God's creation was in turmoil. Some of the kings were good. Most of the kings were evil and bad. 
during the time of the kings, you see that word prophets there. God chose some prophets to speak to the people, to act as God's representative to the people. We see the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. Most of these, they comprise about half of the writings in the Old Testament, but they were God's mouthpiece. And more of what they said was like telling the Israelites how it is, how the cow ate the cabbage, right? That's what they're doing. Most of it is that. Most of it is not telling about the future. There is some of that. But most of it is simply telling them how it is right now. And it's not what God wants. It's not the way God wants it. It's just kind of telling them how it is. The prophets delivered these messages. They were all consistent with God's promises. All consistent with with what God had said to Abraham and to Moses centuries before. The prophets watched the people flip-flop back and forth. They would follow God, they would run from God. They would follow God, they would run from God. But God's promise to them and God's pursuit of them was consistent and persistent. He was committed. God was faithful and committed to pursuing unfaithful people. You realize that God gave them second chances and he gave them third chances. In fact, in fact, it seemed that there was no end to God's favor or God's patience. Generation after generation after generation, the Israelites messed up. They worshiped other gods. They strayed away from God to their own path. They pursued their own stories instead of following the direction of their creator. They broke the rules. And when they did, they faced the consequences. You see, God always gave them a choice. And with every choice they made, here it was. You can choose life or you can choose death. He said, you can choose blessings or you can choose cursings. And like a good father, like a good father, God disciplined his people back toward the right track. We look at some of the things that God did and we look at it as punishment. But I think the reality is God was showing them grace and allowing them back onto God's story, into God's story, onto his path. We all hit, all of us today, we hit messy places in our lives. Like the kings of Israel, We hit those places where we experience a mess from sin, things we've chosen to do. Like the judges, sometimes we have messes with our relationships and we try to navigate those. Like the prophets, we find ourselves in the middle of messes because life just happens. Because we are broken people and with broken people like me and like you, things just mess up. Because they're broken. Like the people in the desert, we just find ourselves complaining and grumbling. And we wonder sometimes, if you're like me, we wonder, did God abandon me? Has he left me? There have probably been moments in your life where you've even been mad at God, angry and upset. And it's possible with this number of people, some of you this morning may be in that place right now. You may feel like that God has left you in the mess that you're in and he disappeared. 
Maybe you thought you were following God and you ended up right in the middle of a big mess. And you're like, I was following you, God. Why did I land in this mess? Perhaps you think you would have been better off staying back there as well. Maybe somebody told you that if you'll just follow God, your life is going to get easy and you're going to be prosperous. And God will take care of all your problems and make your life smooth and easy. Yet you find yourself in a valley, in a very tough place, a hurtful place. Maybe you're afraid that God doesn't like you, that somehow he doesn't know about you or he doesn't notice you or you were out of his reach or he just doesn't care about you. Maybe you look around and you see God working in other people's lives, but you're just not convinced that he wants to work in yours. Many of us feel like we're on a roller coaster type relationship with God. Sometimes we're flying up high and we love God and we're certain that he loves us. We can't imagine life any other way, but then there's those other moments when we come crashing to the ground and we say, where is God in this moment? What do we do when we have moments like that? Maybe there's a better question. Maybe we should be asking something else. Because maybe the answer to that question should be another question which says, what does God do in those moments? When life is crashing all around us, what does God do in those moments? And the answer is this, he remains faithful. Remember, God is not shocked. Your choice, your life, what's happening That has not shocked God. You have not surprised God. You haven't taken him by surprise. He has always been there. He has not left. Through the story of the Bible, we find that God is faithful. He's faithful to wandering and searching people, to disobedient people. He's faithful to confused people. He's faithful to doubting people. He's even faithful to idol-worshiping people. God did not abandon the Israelites through all of that. His promise to them was based upon not their obedience, not whether they did or did not do what he said. His promise to them was based upon God's character. And the same holds true for us today. He isn't distracted by what you've done. He is not distracted by what you're refusing to do. He's committed to who you can become. And he will not abandon you at any point during that process. God is not just with you in the good times. He's with you all the time. The Bible tells us even in one of the most famous passages, Psalm 23, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. 
Not just a valley. He said, I'm with you in the darkest valley. The place where it can't get any worse. It can't fall apart anymore. It's the worst. Guess what? He is there. Psalm 23 also declares this. You prepare a feast for me in presence of my enemies. Once again, in the worst possible place, in the presence of your enemies, God shows up. And then the last verse, he promises this. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I love this. When it says your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me, Think about this, to pursue, to chase, to run after you. This is often in the Bible used as a hunting term, in the hunting context. So in other words, it could say this, God, your goodness and your love will hunt me down. What if God's goodness and love were not conditionally handed out based upon your behavior. But what if instead, regardless of the choices you have made, what if his love is hunting you down? What if God were tenaciously persistent in his pursuit of you? Just like we saw in the life of Abraham, just like we saw in the life of Moses, God works based on his promises, his pursuit of us, based on his promise, his character, his persistence. You see, God is the main character in this story that he's writing. And he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to abandon his story. He's not going to abandon you, the characters like you that he has placed inside of his story and ask them to play a role inside of his story. So the next time that you find yourself grumbling, complaining, confused, doubting, disoriented, fighting, even idol worshiping, just remember this, that you are not so far off script that God cannot bring you back because he will. He will bring you back. He stayed on script with the Israelites, with a group of people that are just like us. And not only was he with them, He revealed his goodness to them and through them. And I want you to know this. God won't desert you no matter what. He won't abandon you. He won't abandon his promise. He is still God. He is still good. It's interesting. When we come to the last pages of the Old Testament, we hit a four hundred year time frame where God stops speaking to the Israelites. For 400 years, at the end of the Old Testament, God is silent. At least in any ways that we have recorded for us today, we don't have any evidence that God spoke to the Israelites for 400 years. And how did the people feel during that silence? Did they feel as if God had abandoned them? Perhaps a handful of people had hope. 
But I'm sure most of the Israelites felt like God had forgotten them and abandoned them. God stopped speaking. And it seemed as if God had closed the book on the story and placed the pen down and stopped writing. But yet the people of Israel waited. Even though God was silent, there was some kind of hopeful anticipation that God would send a deliverer, that God would send a Messiah. His biggest promise that began at creation, it still stood. There was a deliverer coming. We end with these questions this morning. Do we live in a hopeful anticipation of what God is going to do? Do we live in a joyful celebration of what he has already done in our lives? And do we live in thankfulness that he never deserts his people? His promise stands no matter what. Stay tuned, my friends, for next week because this story is getting good. Let's pray. God, for some of us, we have thought that your silence in our lives meant that you have disappeared. Perhaps, perhaps you have not been involved the way we wanted you to be involved. Perhaps we think that you're not watching, that you're not looking, that you're not interested. For some of us, God, we have felt distant from you, Father. Oh, how the children of Israel must have felt distant from you during that 400 years of silence. But God, you had not abandoned them. And Father, you have not abandoned us. You did not leave them. And God, you have not left us. Thank you, Father, that you are still writing your story today. And God... Your best is yet to come. Thank you, Father, that you still invite us to be part of your one big story, even today. And I pray that we will be drawn into your word this week to discover what you have done and what you are doing and what you're going to do. And now, Father, we lift our voices to declare you that you are the great redeemer. And we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.